I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I know Kung Fu. And I'm Daniel Dresner. Wait, you're Anna Marie Cox? Whoa. <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of neoliberal institutionalism and pataphysics. In the next few weeks, we'll be talking about Dark City, the Foundation TV show, and Aliens. We have lots of ideas. You can always make suggestions at our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash space the nation. You can also become a patron there. Hey, Dan, why would people want to become patrons? There are so many reasons to become a patron. First, there is swag involved if you uh, are a sufficient level of patronage. You will get early access to podcasts, get access to our Discord channel, which features all of the other patrons who are basically pretty interesting people that uh, mm-hmm. I like listening to. You will also Competitive have access- weightlifters, there toy designers. Mm. You will have access to our monthly uh, AMAs, which we normally do the first Saturday of every month. And if we reach 250 patrons, we will do another special patrons-only episode on a topic chosen by the patrons. So you got to be a patron to be able to participate in that. But also, if you are super excited about suggesting things, there's another way you can do it, which mm-hmm. is Twitter. I am Anna Marie Cox. He is Dan Dresner. That is an okay way to reach us. We'd really love to see you on the Patreon page, though. Yes, that's true. Dan, today we are discussing... The Matrix. The Matrix. We're entering the Matrix, Dan. Or are we already there? That's really, in some ways, the fundamental question. Yeah. So uh, we are doing the Matrix in part as a prep for the Matrix Resurrections film, which will be coming out, I believe, at the end of December. And the trailer was released last week, and it looked not nearly as bad as I was expecting it to, given the other sequels to The Matrix, which at some point we're probably going to have to talk about in a schmuck <laughs> episode. Also, we want to address the contention. This is a, a longtime internet debate over what is the best living in a simulation film of the late 1990s. Most people would probably say The Matrix. There is a very hardcore cult that argues that Alex Proyas' Dark City, uh, which came out a year before The Matrix, is actually the better film. We will watch Dark City next week and render our judgment. And also, this film is just it, it, a legitimately fascinating combination of pop philosophy. I don't know if like there's been a movie that it, there, you've seen more attempts to sort of seriously deconstruct, and more importantly, Hong Kong fight choreography. This is really <laughs> the first Hollywood film to approach that level of action, and the action holds up, if nothing else does. And I just want to add, Dan... Mm-hmm. I think this is one of the most influential movies of all time. Whoa. Whoa. I know. I, I, I mean, I, I, we should have a whoa counter about how many times I'm going to say whoa in this, <laughs> in this Whoa. And I, I, I don't think you'd argue with me too much about this. It created a whole culture. Uh, it created a whole sort of kind of uh, pop psychology. It's cultural shorthand. I believe William Gibson used the term first the matrix to describe virtual reality but he popularized it i i want to point that the term is not new no but the idea of, of pre- presented to the masses and not just nerds <laughs> that you we are existing in a simulation um revolutionary you know for most folks i have a couple of sort of sad things to say about it as well the not so great influences but still incredibly important Via Columbine, the shooting had happened not too long after the movie was mm-hmm. released. The Matrix has created a kind of aesthetic for school shooting narratives, I would say. Actual school shootings, they are hard to connect. Mm-hmm. But 
there was a lot of pop culture and speculation. There was around. a lot of very easy commentary yes. linking the two would be the way to put it, I think. Right. And I would say that that aesthetic about what mm-hmm. a school shooter looks like, what, you know, yeah. ha- how it exists in popular culture, it borrows from, again, via Columbine, mm-hmm. the Matrix. And also this idea that only I know that we are living in a simulation and everyone else is uh, naive the sheeple everyone else everyone else is npcs right Mm -hmm. everyone else are non-playing characters and i am the one who knows this great secret that is a worldview that lonely teenage boys really gravitate to i would say frustrated rather than lonely but let's face it there's a fair amount of overlap there yes yes and it can be somewhat poisonous it doesn't have to be there is a great movie called A Glitch in the Matrix that is about people who genuinely believe that we are living in a simulation. Mm-hmm. And some of them are nihilist, like you might become, and some of them are just weirdly okay with it. They're okay being meat batteries, like Cypher. They're like Cypher, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and this is also like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, this is like a philosophy 101 conversation of like brains in a vat, about whether or not yeah. you're a brain in the vat or not. It's not a new idea that we are living in a simulation. I think the new part comes from the very elaborate world building Mm -hmm. and from the computer part and the way that interface is presented. But like I said, so there is a nihilistic kind of turn on that philosophy, and that is how we kind of get to red pilling. Yeah. Which is... People would say that has nothing to do with the movie, but it does. (laughs) (laughs) Because it posits a kind of secret knowledge that's available to people who are willing to look. Yes, and we will talk about this later, but I also think, like you, I agree. I think The Matrix is the most important sort of sci-fi, indeed, potentially pop culture phenomenon since Star Wars. It's it's at that level. And because it's that big, it would be easy. Lots of people can wind up ascribing things to it that really bear no resemblance whatsoever to the actual film. And it's an unfair thing. If you're just that big, it winds up there's there's inevitably going to be a toxic subculture. This is a slightly different thing. And we will get to this later in the podcast um, because it's hard. You can't necessarily delink it from the actual movie itself. There is, I think, one unalloyed good thing about Mm -hmm. The Matrix, which is that it is the most successful film produced by trans people, Mm -hmm. at least as far as we know. And there are trans people around the world that consider it a kind of er story for themselves Mm -hmm. and find it very empowering. There is a great deep dive by Emily Vanderwerf, who's a writer at Vox, who is herself trans. And it's sort of an essay about the experience of coming out and also the way that the movie has influenced that particular culture. Really interesting stuff. Now, Dan, now that we've discussed why we're doing it, why don't you tell us a little bit about how The Matrix came into existence? I will be happy to, Anna, but I'm going to need an assist uh, relatively quickly <laughs> in this conversation, which is to say that, uh, as everyone knows, The Matrix is the idea of the Wachowskis, now Lana and Lily, uh, trans women. They read Jean Baudrillard's Simulacra and Simulation, a book which has a cameo very early in the film. Now, even though I have a PhD and I went to grad school, I'm going to confess I have never read Simulacra and Simulation. Anna, do you know anything about this book? Dan, (laughs) I went to humanities grad school in the 90s, (laughs) and this is what we read as foreplay. Buckle up, people. (laughs) Yeah. 
And I also will say, I think, let's just say that this is my capitalism rant, too. Because we were talking before uh, we recorded, this is probably the most explicit commentary on capitalism that we have talked about so far on this podcast. Hmm. Like, something, I don't really have to read into it. Like, there's not a lot. (laughs) There's not a lot of subtlety. You're not massaging the text. The text is right right there. It's literally in the movie. What I want to just talk about for a second, and I'm going to simplify it, and also, believe it or not, this is from memory, so there's probably, I'm probably mixing up some stuff, but I think it will be helpful. What I want to talk about is Baudrillard's idea. Because I think it's worth knowing the architecture that the Wachowskis are building on. Hmm. So... This is Baudrillard's argument. Everything in our world is a symbol and not the thing itself. Whoa. And these symbols have no true meaning beyond, Dan, wait for it, the marketplace. Whoa. (laughs) And it, 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 does a little bit of a progression here. So after the Industrial Revolution, we get mass production, we get mass mm-hmm. consumerism. There is more distance between an original object and its copy that is bought by the masses. Mm-hmm. And eventually, the mass-produced copy becomes more valuable than the real thing. And I know, it's, it's trust me, it, this is sort of just a posit thing. I mean, I guess like examples would be, like no one wants a handmade thing anymore. Everyone wants a machine-made thing. No, all I keep thinking about is Andy Warhol when you're as you're saying this. Yeah, so, oh, yes. commentary, 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 for sure. Yeah. And, of course, since everything is... No, not everything. And, of course, since we are now mostly consuming symbols and not the original objects, we do real labor to buy simulations and symbols. This is a function of capitalism. Whoa. But, Dan. Yes? You and I, uh-huh. we are living in late capitalism. Uh-oh in which there are no original things, only mass-produced copies. Whoa. And we consume these copies mindlessly because that is how we think we get meaning in our lives. You know, we are what we consume. Um, I buy these things that really are meaningless, that have only been imbued with meaning because other people say that they have meaning and there is no original thing behind them. And because we are creating meaning in our life, from things that have no meaning. We ourselves are simulacra because we are based on symbols. Whoa. And we exist only to consume the tasteless pace of mass culture fed to us by, I don't know, a series of tubes. Whoa. You can do it. It's whoa. 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 Or. I'm a little way freaked to put out it. now, Anna. <laughs> Oh, it's okay. It's I okay. want my Calm mom. Down. No, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, uh, have some more shoes. You also could say mm-hmm. our consumption of meaningless symbols, our artificial lives, they unknowingly power the vast machine of capitalism. Whoa. As they say in the film, the matrix and capitalism, a computer generated dream world built to keep us under control. I, I, that was some impressive. Though, though my woes were genuine. My woes were not mass produced <laughs> in that discussion. On, I just want to be clear. Those were artisanal wo- woes. Okay. I, yeah, they were close to the source, and that's a lot, obviously. 
but I think they do a really good job of like building on it. Mm-hmm. It is a film that has some thought behind it. Like oh, not yeah. all of these ideas come up in the film, but the philosophy of the film is actually very consistent. Yes, um, much more so than the plot, actually. Yes, or, or that the, is what I was going to say. Dan, uh, I had one professor that had this really marvelous way of telling you nothing when you presented something, which is, that will serve. Yeah, that's so. a professor vamping because they weren't paying attention. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Well, that sort of explains a lot. So yeah. anyway, I hope that served. And if you guys out there didn't pay attention, that's okay, too. You can enjoy the movie without knowing anything about Baudrillard. Yes. So beyond Baudrillard, there are a few other grubby details in terms of the the story behind the story, which is the casting. Uh, As it turns out, almost none of the Wachowskis' first casting choices accepted their roles. The initial casting was supposed to be Will Smith to play Neo and Val Kilmer to play Morpheus. Smith just did not get the concept. He did not understand it after reading the script and instead took uh, Wild Wild West, which might rank as Will Smith's worst ever career decision. And Will Smith makes very few bad career decisions. So, I mean, this is actually exceptional. We should consider Wild Wild West for shock shock and awe. Yeah, that's possible. That's true. I would have liked to have seen, I will say, a Matrix with Val Kilmer as Morpheus. That would have been interesting. The Neo role was then subsequently offered to both Nicolas Cage and Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) Uh, Both passed wisely, I would say. Um, The Wachowskis then wanted Johnny Depp over Keanu Reeves, but the studio insisted on Reeves. Janet Jackson was originally offered the part of Trinity, and she passed. And uh, the French uh, film star Jean Reno was originally proposed to be Agent Smith, also passed. In fact, I believe the only first choice that the Wachowskis have was actually Joe Pantoliano, who plays Cypher, uh, which is unsurprising since Pantoliano had appeared in the Wachowskis' first film, which was Bound. The Wachowskis also hired Hong Kong director uh, Yuen Wu Ping to choreograph the fight scenes and the wire foo. As I'm sure anyone who's watched this film notices, the fight scenes are pretty intense. They're incredibly well done. It might not surprise you that the fight scenes were so intense that almost everyone got injured during their filming. Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, and Hugo Weaving, who plays Agent Smith, all sustained injuries that either delayed shooting certain scenes or meant relying on stunt doubles more. Was it worth it, Dan? Yes, yes, it was. I mean, we'd have to ask Keanu and Carrie and Hugo, I guess, but the fight scenes hold up better than almost anything else in the movie. Yeah. In terms of, like, the look. Yes. Although some of, actually, because it's set in 1999, it's almost like they get a pass Mm -hmm. for anything that looks, like, it's so specifically 1999. Well, and also, I would add that one of the genius things about saying it's the Matrix is that the few times, you know, there's obviously CGI in a a lot of this movie. But the CGI is entirely consistent with the film because you know that what you're watching is not actually reality in the concept of the film, but rather some sort of simulation. So having the CGI being not perfectly accurate actually, I think, adds to the film rather than subtracts from it. I was going to say, so the the technology doesn't age because it's 1999. It doesn't look weird at all. Um, And then also the real world 2199 has a certain authenticity to it as well, I would say. And Um, it has a grubbiness to it, I think, that actually contrasts nicely with the Matrix, the Matrix scenes, as it were. But the fight scenes are still exquisite. They still, you know, they pack pack a punch, Dan. Oh, well. All right, Dan, let's move on to the plot. Okay, let's start with Act 1. What if I told you this was Act 1? 
So, meet Thomas Anderson, who you could say lives two lives. By day, he's a software programmer. By night, he's a hacker called Neo who sells shady programs. He's passed out next to his computer when it starts talking to him, telling him to ease his pain and go the distance. Wait, don't, sorry, that's a wrong film. Hold on. Uh, <laughs> telling him to follow the white rabbit. This leads him to a club where he meets Trinity, a woman who in the film's prologue kicks the living shit out of every cop that she encounters and seems to have the ability to leap tall buildings with a single bound. She says she knows the question haunting Neo, what is the Matrix? Anna, we don't talk a lot about action scenes in this podcast, although we just did, but the first six <laughs> minutes of this film is holy fucking shit. And it still holds up, I would say. And Carrie Ann Moss looks so good. Yes. Just, you know, she's had other very good roles. I think she's a great actress. Mm -hmm. But she plays this role with um, such sincerity and intensity and grace. Yes. I don't know. There's something about it. I, I feel like some of the acting in this film, that's another reason why it holds up. Yeah. You know? And, and in some it, ways, her acting is, is almost essential because she's sort of the glue that holds together Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne and, yes. and so forth. And like, it, this, this, you wouldn't think it would work. The styles all work. In a way, she's actually more the audience avatar than Keanu. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, by far. Be because yeah. Keanu is more doubtful than the audience is. Yeah. Right? Like, well, he's because we're skeptical. in the movies, we know that this is going to happen. Yeah. Right, right, right. Uh, so, yes, I love that fight scene. I want to say a couple other things, which I had forgotten about the punks that show up at his door. You know <laughs> I have a thing about how punk is represented in movies, and this is an example of, like, no one actually knows any punks. They just are like, they, they dress weird. Here. Well, I hate to say Here's this. Here's some like, punks. Like, also... The punks are requesting software programs? That is, okay, that was going to be my second point. Is like, is it like a, it, again, I was like, are, are we actually in the future? And this is like Neuromancer and like you get high off of programs. Like those people are buying programs. Like what are they doing? Buying like house titles, you know? I mean, it's credit a little cards. Strange. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's never specified. Okay. Yeah. So the next day at work. Very Neo exciting. Very yes. good. The next day at work, Neo is arrested by the same agents who had previously pursued Trinity. These very confident white dudes interrogate Neo and may or may not erase his mouth. Neo is then contacted by Morpheus, who offers him the choice between two pills and tells him that if he swallows the red one, he'll learn the truth about the Matrix. Neo swallows the red pill, and like many who swallow red pills, he starts freaking out. When he awakes, he discovers that he's A, hairless, B, physically <laughs> hardwired into machines that make the Terminator look positively cuddly. And C, that hardwiring has plugged his mind into the Matrix, which is a shared simulated reality. So, Anna, I remember going to see this movie, and I have to admit, I knew there had been some hype, but I don't think like I'd really like read any reviews or anything. And I went to see it by myself. And <laughs> I was more than a little surprised by this plot twist. Um, did you have the same reaction? So, Dan, uh, in the late 90s, mm -hmm. I was working in the dot-com boom. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> this movie was greeted with so much fanfare. Like, it had such a buildup. I had actually spent, like, in 1998, I think I was working for Wired. Mm -hmm. And it and this was, was already being, oh, really? like, talked about, you know. And then, and huh. then, I think in 1999, I was working at a website called Feed. <laughs> You know, it was yeah. like an internet culture website. It's really, actually, there's some really good writing on it. I, you know, what's interesting uh, is that I mean, I wasn't, well. I wasn't not online during the late '90s, but I just, I don't remember. I was thinking very anything online, about this. Dan. That is the distinction okay. I'm trying to make. I was yes. very online before okay. we used the phrase "very online." Yes. And going into it, 
I knew the twist. I think it was in reviews. Mm-hmm. And it's not an incredibly new idea. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the virtual reality existed yeah. at this point, yeah. you know, Snow Crash and Neuromancer. And, right. you know, there was there were people thinking about virtual reality. But I think the total package that the movie presents mm-hmm. is singular and yeah. has the capacity to blow you away the first time you see it. Yes. Because it's it's not just the idea. It's the way the idea is presented. It's, it's the like execution. Said, it's, yeah. It's the interface that they use. This, You know, that creepy towers of humans, which I oh, have yeah. questions about later. Yeah. But it's just all super well done. Mm-hmm. And it hits you pretty hard. So, Dan, what about Act 2? Act two. Sure, he knows Kung Fu, but does he know calculus? Morpheus delivers the mother of all exposition dumps on Neo as Neo is recovering from the fact that he had been plugged in for his entire life. Uh, He also helps to inform the audience. So we learn the following. First, it's not 1999. It's closer to 2199. Second, we learn that mankind is on the brink of extinction and combating sentient machines developed in the early 21st century. In the ensuing war, humans launched weapons that led to permanent overcast days in an effort to deny the AIs the solar power (laughs) they need. In response, the machines turn human beings into batteries by plugging them into the matrix and feeding off their electrical energy, uh, combined with some fusion. We'll get to that in a little bit. (laughs) Or we won't get to it, actually. We won't get to it at all. Morpheus is the captain of a ship called the Nebuchadnezzar, uh, which prowls the sewers and hacks into the Matrix from time to time trying to free people. Most of his crew have been freed from the Matrix like Neo. Morpheus believes that Neo is the one. Hey, by the way, that's an anagram of Neo, in case you didn't know. I know. Hey, wait, Dan? Yeah. Whoa. There we go. I wanted at least one from you. A human with the ability to bring down the Matrix and free mankind. Anna, did I miss anything? And I think that's pretty much the entire exposition dump, yes? It's a long dump, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you got it all. Okay, I really good. do. Good. Yeah. All right, so Neo is also trained in fighting techniques. Well, not so much trained as we're just going to download this right into your brain. He and Morpheus spar, which is lots of fun, and also I would add the first real action scene since the start of the film. Neo is also schooled in the rules of the Matrix. Meanwhile, Cypher, who is one of Morpheus' crew, meets up with agents and promises to give them Morpheus and betray him in return for being plugged back into the Matrix with his memory wiped. That could throw a wrinkle into everyone's plans. (laughs) Anna, I kind of wish it was actually possible to master something just by having it downloaded into my brain. I'd want to learn languages that way rather than have to do the tedious thing of trying to memorize stuff. What would you download besides, of course, Kung Fu? Well, so everything, of course. Like, I want to know everything. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I I like being a know-it-all, Dan. Um, (laughs) But also I have a very specific thing that I want, which is I'd like to know how to play sports and i'll say football and basketball are the two that i'm thinking about Mm. and play them very very well (laughs) because i've oh because i am not good at sports dan i am a nerd in that specific way Mm -hmm. in addition to others yes and my hand-eye coordination like i'm good at balance i'm good at yoga i'm good at skiing but like you put a ball around me and i will miss it (laughs) I will just, it's not, I'm not going to put my hand on it. Okay. And it's just always fascinated me, like the idea um, of what it feels like to dunk a ball and to do it well, not to like be 
that's working like barely, towards it yeah, yeah, yeah. and like barely get it. But to like that's that or or making a three pointer at mm-hmm. the end of a game, like mm-hmm. a buzzer beater, or like throwing a touchdown, like what does that feel like? Doing it at the elite level, right? And I'm going to tell a really quick story because I actually have an answer to that. I once met Tony Romo in an airport lounge, uh-huh. and I did not recognize him <laughs> because we started talking uh-huh. because someone recognized me. No, that is awesome. <laughs> so I'm sitting in this somewhat, you know, like smallish Delta lounge and, you know, sitting near this it was some this kind of handsome white blonde, blonde guy. And this woman comes over and she's like, "Are you Anna Marie Cox? I see you on Rachel Maddow." Da, da, da. <laughs> and then she's like, "I'll let you. Get, I'll let you be." And so then the blonde guy turns to me and says, "Who are you?" And I say, "Oh, I'm on TV, some you know, whatever." And then I, he, I'm like, "So what are you going to do uh, in Washington? We're on the way to Washington." And he says, "I'm playing in a pro am tournament." And I was like, "Oh, that's really cool. Who's your partner?" And he says, "Tiger Woods." And I'm thinking to myself... Whoa, that's a legitimate whoa. Okay, yeah. I'm thinking to myself, wow, this guy must be really rich or something. Like, he must have, like, (laughs) you know, like, bought it at an auction or... (laughs) (laughs) This is such a great meet cute, I have to say. I know. He was dating Jessica Simpson at the time, unfortunately. Um, So... (laughs) Uh, so he's playing golf with Tiger Woods. And then fortunately, someone came over and said, Mr. Romo, may I have your autograph? At which point, I think I carried it off, by the way. Like, I think I think he just thought I was pr- I was like a bold person. You were just, you know, you were just a, you were just too cool for school. Anna. Just making conversation. Yeah. Right. But after I realized he was Tony Romo, like this was before I became a huge football fan. But I mean, I you knew who Tony Romo was. I knew he was like my family follows the Cowboys. I do not, but my family follows the Cowboys. Um, I said the first thing I said to him was, mm-hmm. "What does it feel like to throw a game-winning touchdown?" What did he say? His answer was really interesting. He said it doesn't feel that different from any other. He actually was a thoughtful person, by the way. There, I mean, we had a good conversation. Mm-hmm. He said, but the, he said, the interesting thing is I always, I know the instant the ball leaves my hands, where it's going to go. Like the huh. instant. Whoa. Yeah. And he, I, I said, does that translate to other sports? And he said, yes. Hmm. It's like, is he not as good? Like he, it won't go the place he necessarily wants it to go. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but he said he, when he played baseball in high school, mm-hmm. you know, when he plays golf, like he, he can just know like where things are headed in space. That's a gift. And I, I think it's something like perfect pitch, yeah. as it were. Yeah. Like I, I think probably some of us are just born with that. Although, by the way, I was going to say what this does suggest is that our thought that you can just download this might actually not be true. In other words, if this is part of the body, as it were then mm. it might be the case that this is not actually something that you can download into someone's brain. It's an interesting that question. That's an interesting question. Like, could you download perfect pitch right. to someone? Exactly. It's hmm. a fair point. Well, that's not philosophy for today. No. <laughs> um, I, I, is this the place where we can talk about world building and flaws, or do you want to do that later, Dan? Let's do that later. Cause, okay. Is that okay? Right. I, I, I yeah, do want to talk about that. We're going to okay. get to that. Spoiler but like, alert. We're going to talk about world building and Yes, yes. And, and spoiler alert, some of the world building doesn't hold up, boys and girls. Yes. Okay. okay. Keep going. Let's go to Act 3, uh, cute but not very bright. Neo meets the Oracle, who gives him a cookie and confirms his suspicions that he is not the one. 
The Oracle also tells him that he'll have to make a choice in the future between his life or Morpheus's. Returning to the hard line that is their escape route, they find the Matrix reprogrammed and their escape route cut, as Cypher is clued in the agents as to their location. They try to escape, but an agent attempts to grab Neo. Morpheus intervenes to free Neo, but is captured in the process. Neo, Trinity, et al. find another hard line to escape, but Cypher got there first, jacked out, and then attacked Tank and Dozer, who are on the ship, the Nebuchadnezzar, and winds up being in control. He unplugs Apoc and Switch while they're still plugged in, killing them instantly. He is about to do the same to Neo when Tank manages to fry Cypher's ass. The agents are interrogating Morpheus to get strategic information about Zion. Tank is about to kill Morpheus and unplug him when Neo stops him and says he will go back in to rescue Morpheus. Trinity goes with him. Anna, we've talked on this podcast before <laughs> about keyboard typing in sci-fi. You are not a fan of it. And there's a lot of keyboard typing in this film <laughs> set 200 years in the future. And I know that can be triggering for you. Are you okay? I think this is one of those cases where the idea that they've built the ship from scraps mm -hmm. kind of helps it, that it's antiquated is okay. Mm -hmm. And also, I have to say, that is some urgent keyboard typing. <laughs> I mean, he's actually it acting. Is some of the, the, it yeah. is some of the most like well-acted typing yeah. I have seen. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I think so. Then do I talk about Cypher here? Because yeah, yeah. that's always yeah, confusing to me. I've never quite understood his choice. <laughs> <laughs> but it is one that we know Hugh Jackman would also make. Yeah. That he did in Reminiscence. Like, this idea that you could just be happy existing as in your memories or in a simulation. Well, to be like, fair, this is slightly different from Hugh Jackman's choice. Because remember, he says he wants to be plugged back in the Matrix and he wants his memory wiped. In other words, he doesn't want to remember that this is the choice right. he made. Right. And so in that instance, basically what he wants to be is someone happily, you know, living under false consciousness in the Matrix. Yeah, it's just, like, I mean, part of me is like, why don't you just die? Like, I know that seems really bleak, but, like, if you told me my existence was going to be forever living in the vat of goo, <laughs> like, if my life would have no real meaning, like, nothing I produced would actually mean anything to anyone. No art. Well, okay, so this, no this gets... But all right, now this is a very metaphysical question, which is in the world of the Matrix, if you were at like he remember, he says, I want to be someone important, like an actor, which is actually a legitimately right. funny line. But let's assume let's assume for the moment that Cypher actually was plugged back in. And let's assume he's actually really good at acting and actually did things that moved people within the Matrix, even though everyone's still living in a vat. Does that make the emotions any less real? And because I believe in a higher power, it's even there's another twist here mm -hmm. right because if we're all living in a simulation is there a higher power mm. like and also like the reason that i have a craft in this world like one of I, I i believe not so much in fate but that in purpose let's yes. say and you know one of the reasons i became a writer mm -hmm. is that i feel like i have a gift and, I've seen your writing. You've got a gift. Yeah. <laughs> and it's this sounds presumptuous, but like I want to share that gift. I want to explain shit to people. That's like the why I'm a writer, and I'm pretty good at explaining stuff. I think this is you why. Know? Let me put this way. I understand your position, but I think you. We could get really philosophical here, but it's because you want to explain, as opposed oh. to entertain. 
to explain huh. within the Matrix would actually be to have to tell people, by the way, we're living in the Matrix. <laughs> Whereas if all you cared about was entertain or emotionally impact people or what have you, then suddenly Cypher's decision might actually make some sense is all I'm saying. I'm not saying I would make it because like you, I like explaining things. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, it's, it's an interesting philosophical question. And I don't know, it is true that the human will to live may just be that strong. If, if it was that situation, yeah. I would have been like, yeah, I don't care as long as I'm alive. I, I don't Although really, if all you care about was being alive, then I think, I, again, my, I think your choice and my choice would have been we would have stayed on the Nebuchadnezzar. Even as grim as reality is, it's reality. Because that's existing. Yes, we know. <laughs> and, and also, we are secure in the knowledge that we are existing. And that's the Yeah, and I'll, like, you might as well be dead if you're a meat battery. Yeah. I don't know. Well, we'll talk this about is, that in a little is, bit. That's, that's, that gets to another issue, which we will get to in a second. True. But let's get to Act 4. Please continue. Act 4, I see Christ imagery. Trinity and Neo shoot their way into the military installation that looks curiously like a normal office building. Neo starts showing some moves that suggest maybe he is the one. They commandeer a helicopter, shoot some agents, and rescue Morpheus. The agents, however, have traced the physical location of the Nebuchadnezzar and send sentinels to destroy it. Neo gets Trinity and Morpheus out, but Agent Smith destroys the hardline before he can escape. Rather than run, Neo confronts him, and they fight spectacularly to a draw. Smith kills Neo just as he reaches another hardline. Trinity tells Neo's dead body that the Oracle told her that she would fall in love with the One, and that, hey, she loves Neo. They kiss, Neo returns to life, knowing that he is the One, and defeat and seemingly eviscerates Agent Smith. He escapes the Matrix just as the Sentinels are about to destroy the Nebuchadnezzar in the real world. Morpheus triggers the EMP, and everyone lives to see another sequel. Anna, rewatching this film, I said before, what I kept thinking of was Star Wars in that the world building is intricate, impressive, somewhat flawed. We'll get to that in a second. But the thing that I keep thinking about is that the film's language is unique mm. and the actor's delivery of that language is unique. Just as there are certain things that I would, you know, like if you hear a line, you know it's a Star Wars film. There are certain lines that if you hear it, you're like, okay, this is the Matrix language. And I would say it's particularly true of Hugo Weaving and Lawrence Fishburne, that their deliveries in particular are sort of slow and precise and so forth. 22 years later, is this a trademark or is it mockable or is it both? It's so good. <laughs> it really is. As soon as Hugo Weaving starts talking, mm -hmm. you know where you are. And it doesn't feel cliche. Yeah. It doesn't. It is actually the real thing and not a simulacrum, basically. Ooh. Even though it is also mass produced, I guess. And I was more in awe of his performance than Fishburne's, really. Because mm -hmm. when you think about it, playing a sentient program yeah. is a trick. And to manage to give that character a character that is believable as a sentient program yes. it's he's a believable sentient program he that's is. like and he's, he's a good villain but it's also a, he's a thoroughly understandable villain like he is yeah. just as trapped as everyone else in the matrix is the thing that i find you know found fascinating by it and you're right his his choices with his voice oh, God. are unusual i would say except now we help can imitate them but they still are really really um resonate as it's so funny like how does a sentient machine sound well he sounds like hugo weaving he sounds like hugo weaving saying virus it's just yes. it's it it's amazing and i think this is actually a mr anderson right it's also this is a case where i actually also think that weaving who is australian i think it helps that he speaks with an american accent 
because again it makes it more generic but also i think like the extent to which the accent doesn't quite hold i think makes it even better it just it makes you realize you're seeing something who's not human i guess yeah yeah i haven't well it's call it an insight maybe a question yes i was thinking while i was watching this movie does all world building eventually fall apart? <laughs> all right, Anna, it's time to talk about the parts of the world building of the Matrix that do fall apart. Uh, so do you want to go first or would you, or do, would you rather I do it? I feel um, like I'm being unfair whenever we do this because, you know, movies are movies, plot, you know, yeah. books are books. Like, But the main one I have mm-hmm. is... You can control one thing in the Matrix. Why can't you control everything? I mean, that's a big one. But you they could have just answered that. Mm-hmm. You know, they could have just been like, there are rules we can't break. Well, I mean, he, th- literally, Lawrence Fishburne does say, I mean, Neo- Morpheus does say it, that. Well, we don't hear what they are. Right. That's the problem. There's no. There's a lack of specificity. There's a you lack know, of specificity to a lot of the language in this movie. There's a lot it's, of, yes. yes. And it sort of starts to, especially when they get injured. Or, and also, and, it came to me when they have the sparring program. Right. Lawrence Fishburne's character in the sparring room mm-hmm. doesn't sweat or mm. breathe hard. Keanu's does. Now, this suggests that you can control your bodily functions in the Matrix. Which would mean, like, if you got injured or something, like, you're not reacting. Anyway, sorry, I'm. this is, like, real, like, nitty-gritty stuff. No, 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 wait, wait. So there is a small part of me in which I now feel like comic book guy from The Simpsons in which we... Of course, we this is what this. we do. This is comic book guy section. We could call this in future episodes comic the comic book, book guy section. Excuse me. But, let's put it this way. The problem is, as you say, a lot of the language in this film is not specific. And I think there's a reason for that, which is when the language does get specific, it's not good. <laughs> fusion dan fusion. right no like i when he said like you know so the machines use our power combined with a form of fusion that's like saying i'm going to attack australia with a sword combined with nuclear weapons okay <laughs> the sword is not all that important is the thing i'm trying to say um and there are other contradictions within the the script so for example everyone tells neo what the oracle told them but when Neo is done talking to the Oracle, he's somehow supposed to keep it a secret. Morpheus says, <laughs> what, what was goes in there was for you and for you alone. Then Morpheus, why did you fucking tell him what, you know, happened when you visit? I'm sorry, that's just weird. And, and then finally, like, you know, Morpheus says at one point, we never free a mind when it's reached a certain age. I've seen the age of his crew, and I'm really beginning to wonder how old were they when they were freed? And also, like, we see this when Neo walks in with the other potentials, all of whom are 20 years younger than him. And so it's this, to be fair, and I think this, you know, again, the comparison to Star Wars is apt here. There are these flaws in Star Wars as well. Like, you know, there's the whole Leia saying that she remembers her mother and then that not being the case in in subsequent (laughs) films. And there's the Luke and Leia kissing thing, which is just whatever. So, like... You don't have to have a perfect world to enjoy That's the point. That is true. The world building is still incredibly good, but it's not perfect. I have a couple other things to add. Yes, please do. Are there any actual NPCs in the Matrix? Which is to say, are there people in the Matrix that aren't people in the real world? Because if everyone in the Matrix is a person in the real world, that means they kill a shit ton of people. I was going to get to this. Innocent people. Well, so this this is tricky. So we know, unfortunately, from the sequels, 
that there are sentient programs also running around the Matrix. That it's not right. just the agents, but there's other sentient programs that are, let's say, loosely affiliated right. with the Matrix. So, yeah, that's fair. But I think the, the NPC question is, I think, a valid one. Because the problem is there's a lot of collateral damage in yes. this film. And I think that that gets to... We'll, we'll talk about this in a second or two. But, yeah, I think it's a legitimate question. And then there's my, you know, like idealist sort of question about they make the case you can't have a perfect world people don't buy it right do you have to have real homeless people and real poor people (laughs) because if everyone in the matrix as we far as we know it in this movie is a real person there's a homeless guy living in the subway station yeah i'm betting he would be happy to be liberated from the matrix to be honest yeah i I would think so right Why have people live miserable lives? You can have an imperfect world in which there are people you think are living miserable lives. I, like I don't know. You what. could have a world in which you see that people are homeless, mm-hmm. but they're not. And you don't know this, but they're actually not real people. They're only there to make you feel better about yourself. So you're saying you would you if you were designing or to feel the matrix guilty or whatever. If you were designing the matrix, it would have a more Truman Show capacity quality to it in which. The unflattering characters would be played by sentient programs. That's a fair point. Yes, yes, basically. And because and why why have people who are meat batteries suffer <laughs> if what you want from them is their electricity? I guess the answer is, is because to make there needs to be that possibility in order to make the meat batteries believe that they're living in the real world. But, but, but then you have but no, but then you have the you, anyway, yeah. sorry. No, 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 that's no. why you. You, they exist. You see homeless people. You yes. see poor people. Maybe you see wars. You see whatever. But like, you don't have to have them die. Because imagine, oh my God, there's a war in the Matrix. Why would a computer program that generates electricity off of meat batteries <laughs> ever allow a war to happen? It's entirely... Like, that's a whole lot of meat batteries dying. That is a fair point. And actually, that demonstrates that there's some screwy IR in the film. <laughs> All right. You brought up IR. Yes. Dan? Anna. Is there IR in this movie? Anna, what if I told you I could find international relations in any film? But with The Matrix, I don't have to look that hard. There are two pieces of IR that I think are worth talking about. One very theoretical and one which you just touched on, which is very practical. So the theoretical first. This film, in some ways, might be the best example of the sort of what are, within political science, is called the third and fourth faces of power. So there's a long literature in political science about the faces of power. The first face of power is coercion, which is A gets B to do what B would otherwise not want to do. The second face of power is institutional. A structures the choice set so that B makes a choice that A is copacetic with. The third face of power is A gets B to want what A wants. In other words, Mm -hmm. A is actually able to alter B's preferences, which you could argue the Matrix does. But the deepest level of power, which is the Foucauldian level of power, and there is a literature on this. In fact, I just taught this in one of my classes this week, and boy, my students were frustrated with it. The Foucauldian form of power is the idea that you are literally creating structures that are so taken as given that they are unquestioned. And they therefore condition how we think about things. So the idea that we are living in 1999 when in fact we are living in 2199, something along those lines. And we see this throughout the the film. I mean, at one point Morpheus says the Matrix is literally a construct. And also just because something, to be clear, is a social construct does not mean it's easy to change. It's bound by rules, which again is something that, that Morpheus says. 
still, Foucauldian power is generally, when it's talked about, is thought to be everywhere. It permeates society. Um, and it disciplines everyone, as Foucault talked about in Discipline and Punish. The Matrix, I really do think, is the best example of this concept, possibly in film. Just forget sci-fi. Like, the very idea of Foucauldian power is new here. Yes, go ahead, Anna. Wow. <laughs> I'm very happy with that. Whoa, I'm not going to lie. Okay, the <laughs> practical element, which is something we've been talking about, which is juice and bellow, which is what are the laws of war when you are actually fighting? So the humans are fighting a war against the machines. How do you treat your fellow humans still in the Matrix? This is where a lot of the stuff about red pilling and a lot of stuff about the connection to violence, I think there's a valid point because Morpheus and his crew pretty much think of the rest of humanity as enemy combatants. On the one hand, they say their goal is to liberate humanity from the Matrix, but there are little parts that are sprinkled throughout the film that make it very clear that's not what they actually think. Okay, Switch at one point calls Neo before he's liberated Copper Top, which implies that she just thinks of him as a battery. Morpheus says when he's, you know, uh, mentoring Neo that they are part of the system and therefore our enemy. And also, if you are not one of us, you are one of them, which is a very George W. Bush kind of thought before Bush got elected. Now, to be fair, the final half hour of the film does confirm this, not because humans are attacking Neo, but because agents inevitably are able to occupy the human's body and then attack Neo. So they are legitimate threats and there are reasons to be wary of them. But still, it seems kind of a contradiction to say that you are dedicated to freeing people that you simultaneously view as a potential enemy. Yep. <laughs> it's a real problem. And, you know? and we, we, like, we've been using NPC, not performing character, and I have to admit, that is how all of the humans in the Matrix are treated in this film. And, and there's no other way that... It's a discomforting thought, I guess. My, I, I think NPC can be non-performing character, but it makes more sense here as non-playable character. Right, yes, yes, sorry. Yeah, it's, it's a problem. I want to just make a little bit more of a connection here to the nihilism mm -hmm. that is present when you think that everyone else is a sheeple or everyone else is a copper Right. Top. That is the connection to the red pilling. Yeah. That is the connection to the men's rights movement. Mm -hmm. That is the connection to a lot of kind of like pop philosophy that circulates in the alt-right, basically. Yeah. So. I think we agree that... They're not drawing from nothing when they make that interpretation of this yeah. film. There is an yeah. elitism in some ways that is it is shot through this film in terms of the people who are actually able to escape the Matrix. And so uh, it, the red pilling thing is not born out of nothing. I don't think this is what the Wachowskis would truly want. But nonetheless, that interpreta it's, it, the interpretation is there. So, Anna. Dan. Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this film? Dan, this film. Whoa. <laughs> Wait, Dan, besides your whoa, there's another, uh, there's a sound coming from uh, outside. It's not whoa, it's, it's the debris field. Dan, we've taken a lot of little detours um, during this particular conversation, so I don't know how much we have left to talk about. I think it might be some of the stuff we liked. Yes, that is correct. There are a few things I would point out. Uh, first of all, the lighting and cinematography in this film are so fucking amazing. And in particular, like the, the artificial light of the Matrix where you know that you're in the Matrix as opposed to the light when you're on the Nebuchadnezzar and in the actual real world. Again, it's not like 
Steven Soderbergh's traffic or anything where it's like really out there, but it's it's just incredibly well done. And then also, this is not thought of as a humorous film. I mean, it's a very it's a film impressed with its self importance. But there are a few nice comic touches. I like the the when they go up the elevator. There's like you know there's like a notification of a fire thing. Like when they press the button, which of course is amusing because they're about to blow up the building. But my favorite is Tank telling Neo, "No, your other left." When he's trying to like get to the room with the phone, because like that was actually extremely human, and also it, it happens at literally the most tense moment in the film. So I I, I actually was legitimately surprised by that again. Anna, what about you? Uh, well. Keanu. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. he's he gets um, sold short a lot of the time because he's Keanu Reeves. Yeah. You know, he's like shorthand for like dude yes. and whoa, mm-hmm. right? But like the expression he gets when he has um, all that stuff downloaded into him, it, which includes I Know Kung Fu, right. but actually the sparring scene, mm-hmm. he is so overjoyed by his new talents yes. and you can see it on his face. And it's this expression... It's a very relatable expression of awe and surprise that some people might call looking dumb. No. But it is actually incredibly endearing and relatable. Yeah. There are two other small like acting moments that Keanu Reeves has in this movie that I think are amazing. The first is his face when he comes back into the Matrix for the first time after he's been out. Where like he suddenly is looking at everything in a very different light. And it's like this slow realization of, oh, my God, this really isn't real. And that's something. And then also there's that moment in the subway fight scene where he just does something with his arms to, like, flex that I, I just fucking love watching that. It, you know what I'm talking about? Where, like, he, like, you know, like goes, you know, and, and like dust yeah. falls from his, his shirt or something. It's it's a, no one else could do that. I want to add just one more thing about world building, Dan. Yes, so as I said before, it might be that all you know, science fiction, fantasy world building eventually falls apart if you ask enough questions. <laughs> Is it the case that the only world in which you can continue to ask questions about logic, of motive, of origin, that they all make sense all the time? Is it only this world in which all of those answers make sense? <laughs> and if that is the case, that makes this somewhat a perfect world. And there is no such thing as a perfect world. So. Yeah. On that note, let's talk about Ted Lasso. And scene. <laughs> yeah. Dan. Anna. It's time to talk about Ted Lasso. Okay, let's dive in. Here there be spoilers. And I would also like to say that this is for episode eight, and there is an overarching context, which is that Richmond loses to Man City in a desperate and humiliating fashion. Mm-hmm. So, plot A. Ted and Sharon. Confessions time. First, we find out that Sharon and Ted, not so different after all. <laughs> and then we have a platonic, as in just friends, meet cute for the burgeoning relationship. Sharon gets caught in a fight between her bicycle and a car. And Ted is her accidental emergency contact. Emotional intimacy ensues. We learn that Ted's dad committed suicide when he was 16. When I say I did not love all the bottles in her apartment as some kind of signifier, we might have to talk about that later. Mm-hmm. I think it would be weird and bad if the person who does all the good boundary setting winds up needing to be rescued by someone. 
Just saying. Yes. No, I Plot think B, right. I will not say a lot about. It's Sam and Rebecca. The banter <laughs> buddies are revealed. Rebecca, at first, is very mature about the whole thing, <laughs> but it's TV, so they bone. Plot C, Jamie and James. Uh, this is my favorite arc of the episode and maybe the whole show. Jamie says his dad is a dick, and what do you know? He is. He tries to pour salt in the wound of the Man City loss. He's a Man City fan, you may recall. Beard tosses him out the locker room, and Roy gets to give Jamie the massive hug he needs. It's the massive hug we all need, Anna. That is true. Roy, again, maybe a little too perfect. Plot D, Roy and Phoebe. Roy has to come to terms with being a role model for a young girl and how he shouldn't say fuck so much. It might be the most literal consideration of the duties of fatherhood in a series that's about fatherhood. And it is why I bought the hug, by the way. Because Ah. Roy spends the whole episode thinking about what it means to be a father or a de facto father. Mm -hmm. All right, Dan, I will say what I liked in this episode. Okay, good. I liked that dad was in quotation marks on Jamie's phone. Uh, I don't know if that's intentional or not. That had to have been intentional. I mean, come on. But I loved it. Uh, I loved the absolute commitment to making Jamie's dad terrible. Just Just like... A colossal prick. There's, I mean, just amazing. The actor as well. Just that commitment to that that character. Impressive. Mm -hmm. I like that they lost (laughs) because everything we know about this team would make you think that they would lose Mm -hmm. and it was kind of a nice reversal of some television tropes uh, that they actually lost i don't know if you noticed but in the locker room scene it's handheld camera work yeah i did notice that and it was it 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 was a nice sort of contrast they don't normally use that in ted lasso i think in this case it was effective yeah i agree it it really worked it gave it a verite sense Mm -hmm. also ted's confession to sharon really got to me mm-hmm. as I'm very public about I'm a suicide attempt survivor so that stuff matters I just want to put in here a plug for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline calling helplines is not weird that's what they're there for the mm-hmm. lifeline is 800-273-8255 that's 800-273-HELP and you can also text um, the crisis text line You can also text or direct message the Crisis Text Line. They are at Crisis Text Line, and the text number is 741741. We can get back to the episode now. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of a change of tone, but it's an important scene, Mm -hmm. and I think it's an important issue. Mm -hmm. Changing tone wildly, the Air Dubai thing got some consequences, I guess. Not really expected ones, because what happened was like the fairy tale ending of the oil company pulling out. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Of uh, Nigeria. Nigeria, yeah. Nigeria. I also did love uh, Rebecca's line, though she does not stick to it. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. I'm a pedophile. (laughs) It's a good line. (laughs) And she's correct. (laughs) No, she's not correct. I I know we're going to disagree slightly on this, but she's not. But but right. but she's not I, a literal pedophile. Well, yes, this, that's the point. Yes, you know. But the sense of it, yeah, you know. The right, emotional so, truth. There was a, there was an emotional truth to what she said. I graduated. Yes. Yes, yes. Okay. So Dan, what did you like? I liked the. It was a very quick scene at the very beginning where you see Roy and and Coach Beard just sort of staring at each other, not saying anything, and then Keeley comes in and asks for their help, and they clearly are not going to help, and she says, "Okay, fuck both of you," and Coach Beard just says, "She gets us," which I, I <laughs> and, and Roy nods, and it was just a lovely little scene. It was like a play in one minute. I liked uh, the school teacher. She, she did it. Was again, it was just one of those small little roles, and I thought she played it uh, quite well. 
and, you know, nailed the thing. I liked Rebecca's dress for the date. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that was a lovely dress, and you can see why Sam was making the effort that he did. I liked the subversion of Hoosiers. Now, have you seen this film? Yes. Okay, so, like, that scene where they're all in Wembley and where Ted is trying to say it's the same pitch as we've played, like, at AFC Richmond, it's like, actually, no, it's not. And, And first of all, it subverts Hoosiers. Second, it points out the absurdities of soccer because, like, Changing the size of the pitch strikes me as actually a really important thing, and like it's bizarre to me that you you do that. And third, it also points out the ways in which Ted might be a good coach, but also is not perfect in many ways. And like he's unqualified. Yes, I mean, exactly. like he's a good coach, but he's unqualified. He's unqualified for for, for English football. Yeah. And yes, like you, I liked the hug tremendously. It was the it was a, the key emotional moment I think in this season. And, and a nice way to sort of, in some ways, resolve the Roy-Jamie tension. So that was, yes. I thought, very effectively well done. I will talk about what I learned, Dan. Oh, good. Bad dads are bad. Mm-hmm. Sharon can sing. Mm-hmm. Most of what <laughs> I like about this season isn't in the comedy of it. That is a fair and Do you want to talk for a second about that? Because I, I think it really struck me with this episode. Yeah. Because the stuff with Ted and Sharon did get to me. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And it's, and in fact, one of the things I kind of have liked about Sharon is that she subverts Ted's wackiness. Yes. Like, it's... And she sees through it for like... Right. Not, not to imply that it's a false thing, but like she, as a therapist, as is appropriate, she recognizes there's things that are underneath, that lying beneath that goofiness. And also, I think, I agree with you, they've slow played Sharon and Ted's relationship, which I think has been... They haven't always showed patience on things, and this is one thing I think they did show patience on. And then I know we're going to talk about this, but you can have a great relationship with your parents and still have a Mrs. Robinson kink. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I know we disagree about this a little bit. Just a uh, little bit. I want to be very clear. We don't disagree wildly, but we disagree okay, a little yes, bit. Okay, yes. You should posit it's not wild. I yeah. think you're just more sympathetic yes. than I am, I, I would say. Well, so... Can but, I, be, we're talking about the Sam Rebecca thing. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about Sam. So let, let me put it this way. I think... In some ways, here's my... T- the thing that I liked is that, you know, first of all, as you say, bad dads are bad, but also good dads are good. And apparently they give you the necessary confidence to be like the most emotionally mature person in the entire show. And I think in some ways, we talked last week about Roy being sort of a a dream character, you know, a profane pixie dream boy. I think part of the issue here is that Sam in some ways is even more of a idealized character because he's 21 again with the emotional maturity of a 45 year old man. Um, and so, Oh, he's more mature than most 45 year olds I've ever met. Yeah, that's a fair point. Okay. (laughs) He might be more mature than I am and I'm definitely older than 45. So yeah, like within the context of the show, I had less of an issue with how that Sam Rebecca thing plays out. But I think the problem is, is that you're right. He's such a highly idealized character. He's a Mary Sue. Um, yeah, in, in some ways. And that's why I don't... I agree with you in that fundamentally it doesn't work. Within the context of the show, I'm like, okay, I can live with it. But but I understand why, why why it's not great. And this gets to a question that we probably shouldn't hash out right now, yeah. which is what responsibility does, you know, art or pop culture have mm-hmm. um, to the messages it sends? And I guess I was disappointed in the show. Yeah. Because of this plot line. For two reasons. Number one, I think it's pretty lazy. <laughs> And I don't, as a newly divorced older lady myself, I've been very sensitive to the trope of divorcee finds hot young man to feel better about herself. 
And I've come to regard it with a lot more suspicion than I used to Mm. when I was younger, Mm. you know, and and it made sense. It doesn't make so much sense now. Uh, I think being pretty self-actualized is the goal of the new (laughs) newly divorced lady. And finding a man or not finding a man isn't the way that we judge our worth. I would hope so. And then I do just think it validates behavior that's bad. You know, Um, the power differential between Sam and Rebecca is immense. And you and I talked about this. You pointed out she can't really, your suggestion was she can't really fire him because it'd be like firing Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> like you're not going to fire the star quarterback if you're the the owner of a team. It's it's right. you could, technically yes, you're right. You could do it. It's not like that person is going to have uh, problems finding another job. But but in the in the universe of the show, I just yeah. feel compelled to point out that he, they're not the Chiefs. Although That's the true. Chiefs are at the bottom <laughs> of the division right now. It's true. Fair. They're more like an arena football league uh, yeah. team at this point. Yes, that's fair. Yeah. And I will point out also the other way that power differentials work isn't just in the threat of depriving someone of something, mm-hmm. the threat of retaliation. It's also in over rewarding yes. the person that you are having the relationship with. Which I will add is what, unfortunately very common in international relations and international politics, but yes. It's, it's common in humans. Yeah, that's you know. right. Yeah. Um, but, but what happens with it, and that's manipulative because there's sort of a message, what I gave you, I can take away. Right. So I can agree with you that within the context of the show with this magical person right. that is Sam, not so bad, but, but within I wish but it, but you, the I, show hadn't done it. I think we're actually in agreement now. I think that I think we yes, I think we've managed to 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 get there because I agree with you that within the context of the show, okay, I w- I like you. I think fundamentally agree in the end. The show should not have gone there. Yeah. yeah. But we're giving it a pass like many things this season. So, Dan, what did you learn? I learned that you can't do certain jobs if you swear all the time. You know, not uh, terrifically surprising. Um, As I said, I learned that good dads are good, and and that plus a great haircut can give men the necessary confidence sometimes to take uh, romantic risks, so good for them. (laughs) (laughs) I learned, and this really was my favorite part of this episode, is that good therapists reciprocate openness um, with their patients to build trust. And I say this as someone married to a therapist that I've been legitimately impressed with how they've handled that storyline. Because as you say, before um, Ted makes the emotional confession to Sharon, and I'd forgotten this until I rewatched it, it's Sharon who first opens up to Ted about being scared, about not being able to ride the bike, and so on and so forth. And there was a nice little comment uh, or conversation that Sharon has with her therapist at the beginning, which again, most therapists also have therapists. So like that's actually an important grounding moment in which she realizes the only way she's going to build trust with Ted. And so I actually thought this was a good direction the show has taken. And it's not funny, but that doesn't mean it's not good. It's it that is quality television and I did appreciate that. I appreciate any ep- any te- episode of television that actually gets the details of a particular profession right. And then finally, Higgins has actually been an interesting character this year in that he's been simultaneously quasi humiliated in terms of his lack of, of office space and yet is like the Yoda of the show in some ways. Yeah, and so, yeah. you know, he has this wonderful little line with, with to Jamie saying, love your dad for who he is and forgive him for who he isn't. And you know what? That's a really good piece of advice. I would say you could expand that to everyone kind of yeah. <laughs> like it really it's, it, it's perhaps especially useful in thinking about one's parents. I think family, um, it works better for family because you know, 
you you can choose your friends, and sometimes you can't forgive necessarily. But with family, yes, or or chosen family. All right, we're closing up shop now. Thank you, Dan, for joining me. We have some exciting stuff coming up, including uh, the foundation on Apple TV, and we are going to follow City. this show. Oh, follow this show up with um, kind of a, a pair. This is a pairing, Dark City. Yes, yes. Uh, to go with the Matrix. And until then, Dan. Keep this channel open for more.